Welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Click Middle East News Hour. I have the distinct pleasure this week of doing this show with my very, very good friend, the deputy editor, uh, the deputy editor of the Asia Times, uh, David Goldman. He's uh, talking to us today from New York. Hey, David. Carolyn, always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've been trying to get David on the show for a while, but he travels around. He's busy, busy, busy. And so I'm really, really thrilled that we get uh, an opportunity finally to catch up together and uh, and with you guys, our audience. And um, David is an expert on a lot of things. He really is a Renaissance man in the true sense of the term, which is why it's always a joy to speak to him. But I want to focus our discussion today on uh, China and the United States. And of course, how could we not uh, end it with, with Israel? Um, but um, I think it was important for us to talk this week, I mean, because China is obviously always in the news, but uh, this week or last week, one of the two, this time, November uh, 1991, Israel and China uh, reinstated re- their relations. I think that they were cut off after the Six-Day War, if I'm not mistaken, in 1967. So uh, Israel and China were uh, marked or are marking 30 years of diplomatic ties. Um, those have obviously expanded uh, rapidly and significantly uh, under the watchful gaze of the United States over the past 30 years. Um, and we're also uh, discussing these topics a week after President Biden had his online three and a half hour summit with uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Um, and so I thought it was a very good time uh, to talk about uh, these issues with you. Um, and the first thing that, and like I said, I want to open this up actually with a book that you wrote, where you published about 10 years ago. Uh, where you were explaining why civilizations collapse. Um, and uh, I think it might, I have it here somewhere, but um, here, here it is right behind me. How civilizations die and why Islam is dying too. So um, this came out in, you can interrupt me at any 2011. time. 2011. When 2011. Okay, so it did come out just a decade ago, and uh, and um, and so um, when we're looking at it, the United States and China, I'm wondering uh, what I I feel the reverberation of a lot of the themes that you discussed in your book, and I'd love it if you could discuss it in terms of both the United States and China today. Over to you, David. Uh, demographic, <laughs> demographic winter. Demographic winter is the biggest issue facing the West. There's only one country, industrial country in the world, uh, with a fertility rate above break-even. That, of course, is Israel, where the average female has three live births in her lifetime. Uh, everywhere else in the industrial world, it's below two. The United States, when I wrote the book, was a little bit above two, and now it's around 1.7. Europe's around 1.5. Taiwan and Korea, <coughs> at the absolute bottom, are at one. So they're disappearing countries. Now, China's birth rate is also quite low. Uh, there have been any number of articles in the professional uh, press saying China is therefore a declining power, its demographics are terrible. So no one should worry about it uh, in the long term. Uh, The problem is the same problem afflicts everyone. And China's fertility rate, China's, well, the long-term consequences are about similar to Germany's, for example. Germany is the advantage that it can take immigrants to the rest of the European community. Uh, But the real question is relative. Who's declining faster than anyone else. And the idea that China's demographics are going to prevent it from being a strategic rival to the United States and possibly the world's dominant power in the next 10 to 20 years, uh, I think that's a very misguided way of looking at it. Well, didn't China also reverse the policy or update the policy from a one-child policy that they had instituted uh, in the past? Was that, was that during the Cultural Revolution um, to two children per family? Uh, they have, but the Chinese haven't been having two children. During the pa- corona pandemic, uh, the birth rate actually fell, not rose. So whether that will have any effect uh, remains to be seen. 
But there's a big debate on it as to whether China is a rising power or a declining power. And the answer to that question in good Talmudic style is yes. <laughs> it is a rising power and a declining power. It's like uh, Rob Soloveitchik's drosh about Brezhiv. There were two atoms. Well, th there are two Chinas. There were two Chinas back uh, 30 years ago. There was the subsistence agriculture China of millennia past that was still there. And then there was the new industrial economy based on semi-skilled industrial workers producing consumer goods for the world market, uh, all the, the inexpensive toasters and uh, televisions that you bought at Walmart. And that China increased per capita income by 10 times in only 25 years, from 1995 to 2020. It's an astonishing accomplishment. And what percentage now, of China was that? Well, that became all of China, okay. uh, nearly all of China. They're only, uh, China's moved 600 million people from countryside to city, biggest migration of people in history in 30 years. And there are only about 500 million people left in rural China. So out of 1.4 billion people, it's largely been urbanized. And that will continue, but that's not going to be the impetus for growth because the resources of farmers to bring to the cities are dwindling. The Chinese have bet the farm on the idea that they can lead the fourth industrial revolution. That's the revolution of artificial intelligence and very high levels of automation and productivity, uh, which has stupendous implications for virtually everything we do from manufacturing to transport to medicine, logistics and so forth, agriculture. Uh, it's transformative. Uh, <clears throat> the people who say <clears throat> China is in decline are right because the old smokestack model is su subject to diminishing returns. But they ignore the fact that China has committed massive resources to a technological transformation, which is lagging in the West. So, for example, the carrier technology just as the railroads were the carrier for the second industrial revolution, they made possible dozens of other technologies which were uh, enabled by the railroads. Mobile broadband, 5G mobile broadband, is the carrier technology for dozens of other new technologies. And China has 70% of the world's installed 5G capacity already. And it's building out at a much faster rate than the rest do of Chinese, the world. Do Chinese people themselves need uh, these technologies? Are they using these technologies or this? I mean, are, are, are Westerners lagging behind the Chinese in terms of developing these technologies or wanting these technologies? Are the Chinese ahead or do they just have the technologies and they're not really using them? It's really a matter of rolling out technologies, for example. Uh, take the American supply chain crisis, which is so much in the headlines. Right. The port of Long Beach now has, at last count, 91 container ships waiting outside, unable to unload. The World Bank has a ranking of efficiency of ports, and Long Beach comes in at, I think, number 330, close to the bottom of the list. Most of the, most, uh, of the top 10 ports in the World Bank's ranking are Chinese ports. The Chinese have already used 5G to automate their ports. Go on YouTube and watch these animations. They're amazing. Uh, you've got 5G-controlled cranes, which find a container in a ship, take it out, put it on an autonomous vehicle, take it to a warehouse. Every package in the container has a barcode or a computer chip, and most of the sorting out in the warehouse is done by robots. So China's already automated its ports. Uh, China has a third of the world's manufacturing, but more than a third of the world's industrial robots. And it, 5G allows robots to talk to each other so they can literally program themselves and bypass numerous human steps. So you can do bespoke manufacturing 
with incredible productivity. You look at uh, the single most productive auto plant in the world is Volkswagen's plant in China, because it's just a few engineers sitting in a bubble over a sea of robots, uh, which do all the work. So yes, some of these technologies are already in process. It's the beginning, we're in early days, but you can see that uh, China already has uh, autonomous taxi services in some cities. 5G allows safe autonomous vehicles because the vehicles can communicate with each other, transfer an enormous amount of data with very little time delay. So that makes it possible to run autonomous vehicles more safely. That's already happening in pilot projects. Uh, so yes, in many respects, the Chinese are ahead of us. It doesn't mean they'll always be ahead of us. I think if we put a national effort into it, we could catch up and surpass them. But we show absolutely no signs in the United States of having an interest in doing that. So wait, before we move to the United States, so what, what is the other side of China that indicates that it is declining? Because you, you, you've been giving these indices that, that would indicate that it's rising at a phenomenal clip and that... Uh, I mean, and I know that technologically, I was listening to uh, uh, watching uh, General David Thompson, the head of the United States Space Command. Uh, he gave he gave remarks uh, in Halifax, uh, Canada, last week that I talked about it in my article that's coming out in Israel on Friday, and um, he said that they absorb technology at twice the rate that the United States does, which means that from uh, the moment that they have an idea to the moment that they're able to actually use it, um, it takes it takes half the time that it does for the United States. And and my sense was that he was being generous to the Americans because the impediments to doing that sort of thing on the American side that he that he listed were significant, very significant, mainly the bureaucratic well, I, aspect of it. Yes, I'm, I'm I'm sure he's right. Well, the other advantage China has is. A very large industrial base, but it sounds uh, like they don't need—they don't need people, right? Because they're doing everything with robots. So they have all these people. Oh. But maybe they're automating them out of jobs the way that's happening in the United States. Well, their their workforce is already stagnating for demographic reasons. It will decline over time. What China has done is to shift from old economy smokestack semi-skilled jobs—that's the declining part of the economy—to uh, highly skilled engineering jobs and high technology. So just as one example of the generation that came into the factories from the farms back in the 1980s and 1990s, 2% had a college education in China. Of those who are now 30 years old, it's 27%. And the next generation over the next 10 years, it'll be over 50%. A third of Chinese university graduates study engineering China graduates seven science or technology grads for every one that we do at the bachelor's level and three at the doctoral level. The former chief economist of the World Bank um, uh, uh, just published a book in which he said, it's all about human capital and our human capital is so much larger than that of the United States that we will dominate the fourth industrial revolution. Now, well, as I said, it's early days, but... What percentage of American uh, college graduates have engineering degrees? 7%. 7% and they the have 30%? Yeah, 30, to their 33%. And uh, the largest majors, I believe, are health management and business, which are nonsense majors. So we're not really educating our kids. We're not making them work. Uh, in China, to get into college, you spend years studying for a murderous college entrance exam, the Gaokou. Half the kids fail. Some of them take it again. We'll go to university later. But uh, Chinese kids work incredibly hard to meet a high standard. Now, the universities used to be pretty much a joke. The Cultural Revolution destroyed the university system. But in the last 10 years, their science and engineering teachers are mainly men and women with PhDs from American universities. And in all the surveys, the big Chinese universities are up to global standards. They're among the top 10 or top 20. So 
their university system is producing very competent people. Well, you know, we're uh, producing uh, business majors and, uh, uh, you know, diversity trainers. So, okay, so where where are they failing? Are they failing? Are there any drawbacks to their system? It sounds like they're just they're just one massive assembly line for human capital uh, and for new technologies, and maybe they're unstoppable. Is there is oh, there, uh, what are the drawbacks of anyway, their system? You, there are you, lots you, of drawbacks. China, China, China is no paradise. It's an authoritarian system. It's very hierarchical. So. Uh, anytime anyone at the top makes a mistake, that mistake is propagated massively down through the ranks. In the worst case, historically, Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward, which ended up killing between 30 and 40 million people by starvation. It was the single biggest crime, in a sense, somewhere between a crime and a blunder uh, in, uh, in recent history, probably in all of history. Uh, more recently, on the small scale, China had a severe energy shortage for the last few months. That's because Xi Jinping decided that cutting back in coal production would get him in good with John Kerry and Curry favor the Biden administration. So everybody went and shut down coal production. Suddenly, they couldn't produce electricity, and they all had to turn around and say, no, no, go back and produce coal. They seem to have gotten it under control, but for a while... Uh, they had severe power shortages in China. That was a small-scale mistake that was correctable in a few months. But it's very easy for an authoritarian system to propagate blunders and uh, you know, do some really dumb things. So uh, they have made mistakes. They will continue to make mistakes. Um, but they do seem able to correct them and adjust in time. You know, and and I I just keep I listen to you every time, and I shudder because I look exactly at the diversity training, at the equity, at the insanity of the American ruling class, um, and may, you know insanity in so, certain senses, and and really the the treachery of of the ruling classes in the United States that are doing things that are just horrible. I mean, we saw. We saw an obvious example this past week twice in, in Wisconsin, first when uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted after he had been uh, the subject of a, of a witch hunt and demonization for a year for uh, uh, killing people in a mob who were trying to kill him, who an obvious uh, self-defense, and he was demonized and he was acquitted. And in a way, it was a miracle because uh, with the support of the media, you had mobs who were trying to intimidate and terrify the jurors into, into convicting him for crimes that he didn't commit. And then apparently in response to that, you had a man who was let out repeatedly from jail after committing violent crimes. Um, and uh, he took his SUV and he plowed it into a crowd of people who were in a Christmas parade and he killed six of them, including an eight-year-old little boy and, and several uh uh, grandmothers, um, because apparently he wanted to avenge Kyle Rittenhouse's um, uh, acquittal. And in this case, you have uh, the media, you have you have the the uh, uh, radicalized uh, prosecutors and DAs who are letting these people out of jail and having no cash bail rules that just get them all uh, get out of jail for free cards. Um, and um, and then you have the media that's trying to cover it all up because they don't want anybody to make an issue of the fact that this is what they're doing. So you look at this and then you look at the Chinese and the Chinese are doing an awful lot of incredibly evil things with, with their Muslims, uh, with, uh, with Tibet, with Taiwan, with Hong Kong, um, just to name a few off the top of my head. And, um, and yet they keep the just, they're just moving forward, simple. you know? Chinese have a simple system for dealing with rest of minorities. They um, kill them. <laughs> yeah, kill them. They've, they've, they've been doing that for 5,000 years. China, remember, is not a nation state. It's a highly diverse empire. There are six major language groups and 200 minor languages and many minor uh, ethnicities. Uh, it's held together by centralized infrastructure and a centralized bureaucracy and tax system. It's always in danger of flying apart. 
uh, the 1920s and 1930s, it did fly apart. That was the century of humiliation. The Chinese always worry about that. That's why they're so sensitive about Taiwan, because every Chinese regime worries that one rebel province will lead to many rebel provinces. But if you ask any Chinese from educated bureaucrats to business people and so forth among the Han population, what are you going to do about the Uyghurs, the Muslim minority out in Xinjiang? They shrug and say blandly, we're going to kill them all without emotion. That's just the normal Chinese way of doing things. Now, there has to be something in between exterminating minorities that don't behave and turning over the country to diversity trainers, as we do here. Uh, well, that happy medium, system. so to speak, was the American way for most of America's history. You know, I mean, you had you had a very healthy uh, you had a very healthy democratic ethos that enabled people to solve their problem through deliberation and through legal means. And now you're seeing increasingly in the United States just this rule of the mob. And that is that is supported and empowered by these very radicalized elites. And uh, well, th this is right. The, the real issue in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, in my view, is government abdicated its responsibility to maintain, maintain order. If that happens, citizens will try to help maintain order, which this 17 year old confused kid did, and they'll make mistakes. But the real fault lies with the government. Uh, China has very little difficulty maintaining order. When you read of disturbances in China, they're highly organized pantomimes of protests. But I've never seen a gun on the street in any city in China. There's virtually no police presence. There are cameras everywhere, of course. People know better. Uh, the, the fellow who drove his, uh, Daryl Brooks, who drove his SUV into the crowd in Wisconsin, uh, would now be a kidney donor in China. So people you know, know the consequences of misbehaving. I don't like the Chinese system. Uh, I respect the Chinese, but I'm not a panda hugger. There's nothing I like about the place, including the food. Of course, they eat kosher, so that's easy. But <laughs> They don't eat kosher. They eat dogs. What are you talking about? There's nothing less. No, I say I eat kosher, so oh, you it's eat easy kosher. for me to reject Chinese cuisine. However, there is vegan Buddhist cuisine there, which is to die for. So I, I shouldn't speak to uh, whenever I go there with Israeli groups. That's where we eat in these Buddhist vegan restaurants. Good to know that there's something to eat in China. But 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 before but but before we leave it, because I mean, what what I was trying to say, and I guess I just am sort of uh, stunned by what is going on uh, in what in you know what happened in in Waukesha, but. Um, I, I got to say that uh, the real feel there's a real sense that the United States is very much in 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 decline. You know that it that I I just read an, a Yahoo story uh, that came out today um, that uh, explains how the Pentagon, Mark Milley first and foremost, and Gina Haspel at the CIA undermined every single effort by President Trump to destabilize the Iranian regime. That they had put together a 600-page uh, uh, set of recommendations of what they wanted to do in order to destabilize the Iranian regime, and um, they couldn't get anybody to do it. Mark Milley slow rolled the entire thing, tried to prevent it. Um, Mattis did too. Gina Haspel did everything that she could to subvert it, and they lied to the president all the time. And then they only finally started giving him options for moving forward after he was already a lame duck. And it was clear that uh, the options wouldn't be ramped up until after he was out of office, meaning never, given uh, Biden's uh, position on, on Iran. So you see this completely dysfunctional state. We already found out uh, in Bob Wordsworth's book that uh, Mark Milley actually called his Chinese counterpart to tell him that he was going to uh, disobey any order that he may receive from President Trump to attack China, which in and of itself was absurd because why would Trump have ordered him to attack China in the first place? And he wouldn't have ordered him to do it. He would have, you know, that, that at any rate, I mean, you hear about this massive dysfunction in America. You see it receding 
The Chinese tested this hypersonic glide vehicle that's you know circumnavigated the globe, and uh, and was able to uh, hit its target or hit hit a target that was 20 miles off of its target, but still was quite excellent. And the United States didn't have a Sputnik moment; uh, they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and and went forward. The Chinese and the Russians both have hypersonic missile capabilities. The United States doesn't, and these are uh, first strike weapons. And the United States doesn't have a defense against them. They're asking Israel to help them with the Arrow 4 to develop protection for hypersonic missile uh, attacks. I, this is, uh, I talked about it with Stephen Bryan a couple of weeks ago when he was on the show, but the United States just seems to be uninterested in either defending itself or certainly not in defending any of its interests or its allies. Um, and and when you look at this and then you it's, look at this, what's that? But you look at this a second yes, time. And it's terrifying. It has a bit of the stench of uh, France in 1940 to it, um, or even Britain in 1940. Um, I think the United States is in a similar situation to Britain in 1941. Between 1841 and 1941, the Royal Navy was the dominant power in Asia, from the first opium war, when Britain crushed China, forced them to accept uh, opium imports. Um, till December 1941, British battleships ruled Asia. What changed December 1941 is that um, Japanese dive bombers sank the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, and a few weeks later, Japanese troops overran Singapore, which was the biggest military disaster in British history. Uh, just before that happened, Winston Churchill uh, told a journalist, according to Andrew Roberts, his biographer, that if there were a war the Japanese would fold up like the Italians because they were the WAPs of Asia. Uh, Churchill may have been a great man, but he was certainly wrong about Asia. Uh, now we've got a situation where the Chinese have spent 20 years creating enormous defenses uh, along their coast. They have 350 missile launchers for intermediate range ballistic missiles that can sink American ships, including American carriers. Uh, our Aegis uh, defense system is, you know, decades old, very much out of date, undermanned and antiquated, uh, really not a defense against this. They've got 60 very quiet diesel electric submarines, similar to what the Israelis have, but they're attack submarines. Uh, they have a modern air force. Uh, the United States can no longer win a conventional war on China's coast. Uh, former uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert Work reported that there were 18 recent war games uh, at the Pentagon of US versus China, and the US lost all 18 of them. And on top of that, we have a Russian-Chinese military alliance developing, front page of South China Morning Post, which is a Communist Party newspaper, heralds a new deepening of Russian-Chinese alliance with joint patrols, joint planning, and so forth in the Pacific. So we've really put ourselves behind the eight ball. Uh, we've been here before. We were there in 1975 with respect to the Russians in the Central Front. Uh, if we had the national will, we could get out of it. But that's like saying if we had some you know, bagels, we could have bagels and locks if, of course, we had some locks. So uh, at the, for the time being, this could change, and I devoutly hope it changes. I've been... You know, writing papers and proposals for changing it for years. Uh, but the trend is towards a stronger China and a weaker the United States, weaker United States. Uh, so if the first question was, is China a rising or a declining power? And the answer is yes. Uh, the second question should be, is it good for the Jews? Well, I think the second question was, is the United States a rising or a de declining power? And the question and the answer was not yes, it was declining. Yes, we're declining. And we're an American ally. Uh, uh, we, the Jews, the Israel is an American ally. I say we, though I'm an American citizen. Uh, Israel is an American ally, cannot be anything else than an American ally. Uh, but America is a declining power whose interest in the Middle East is diminishing. So before talking about 
whether it's good for the Jews, I'd like to read you um, an evaluation that appeared in uh, one of the Chinese websites close to the state council. It's called the, the Observer or Wancha. And it says the following. This is an evaluation of the Israeli military a few months ago. Israel, the Chinese right, was not established because of the United States. 2,000 years of survival experience has made the Jews well aware of the importance of betting everywhere. The Jews are very good at taking the high ground. They embraced Britain in the era of the Pax Britannica, embraced the United States in the era of Pax Americana, and today, when China is an obvious world pole, Israel attaches great importance to maintaining good relations with China. Let me just back it up a second, because I think before we go to this part, I want to talk for one second about you, what you were talking about, the America's declining interest in the Middle East. And I wouldn't disagree with that, except in one sense, that you see that uh, the progressives in the United States that are fundamentally anti-American are also incredibly anti-Israel. And what we're seeing now is that this this diminishing American power, this diminishing American superpower in the region is actually devoting its energies under the Biden administration and previously under the Obama administration um, in attacking Israel and demonizing Israel and in empowering Iran. And uh, to a degree as well, uh, certainly larger, I think, under Obama than it is today, just because of the things that have happened in the intervening years, but the Muslim Brotherhood as well. And when you look at the rhetoric of the Democrats today, uh, the progressives and in the silence of the moderate Democrats on this issue, uh, they're also increasingly anti-Semitic towards American Jews. So that I think, you know, I don't I don't know whether you and I have spoken about it. I've spoken about it with David Wormser and I've written about it, that there is a linkage between anti-Semitism and anti-Americanism. And um, so it's not only, I mean, what, what the Chinese were saying is true. I think that the secret of, Amer of the survival of the Jewish people over time has been our ability to pivot over time to, you know, it, it's sort of like waves. It, it's surfing the waves that one wave goes down and then we look for the next great wave and we and we and we're able to survive that way, uh, sometimes mainly poorly, but uh, still uh, get through it uh, to some degree. And um, and so I think you're right that uh, the United States and Israel and the Jewish people and the American people, so long as America is America, then there's no no nothing, no power on earth that can that could really divide us. Um, but the problem is that increasingly, as you see these anti-American forces taking over in the United States, they're also transforming the United States into something that it never was, which is and socially and culturally anti-Semitic, just as it's culturally oh, anti-American. The degree of anti-Semitism, I can tell you, American Jewish parents with children approaching college age are looking in horror at the state of anti-Semitism at American universities. Uh, and the degree of pressure against Jewish students, particularly pro-Israel, uh, observant Jewish students, uh, is unimaginable. It's worse, it was really never this bad because there was no ideological bias. Once you define America as a colonialist power based on slavery, misogyny, transphobia, or whatever corrupted our founding uh, evil to begin with, then because America was founded so much in emulation of Israel, you define the Jews as part of the imperialist, colonialist, evil power and throw them in with that. So yes, anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism go together and they are on the rise. 50% uh, of the Democratic Party is now anti-Israel, according to the Gallup polls. And given the brainwash- 52% did you say? 52%? About 50%. No, about 50, about half. I can't remember the exact number, but- Yeah, and among younger people, it's a lot higher. Yeah, the universities are really terrible, but America will be Israel's ally for some time. 
And America, for all its faults, has allies. China has no allies. It has no sense of loyalty, no sense of obligation, no sense of common purpose with any other country. It only has raw self-interest. So you can't. But isn't that a little bit weird? Because you were saying that China isn't a nation; it's an empire, right? So, in a way, you would think that China would be seeking out connections, if only to dominate other countries. But basically what you see is that China acts on its own, it dominates other countries, um, but you are saying that it wants to absorb the other nations into its culture, but that's not, it's not a pattern that we're seeing here, is it? I mean, am I missing something? that, that phase of China's history ended with the Tang Dynasty around 800 CE. China since then has shown absolutely no interest in projecting power in a big way outside its borders. It wants the rest of the world to be dependent on it, to be inferior to it, to pay a tribute, but it doesn't want to extend it. It doesn't want to absorb them physically in the sense of the way the Soviet empire wanted to make everybody communist and have one great communist empire. So does it just, does that make it, it, does that make it a live and let live kind of superpower that it just wants you to not mess with it and, you know, uh, uh, give it uh, trade advantages and then it'll leave you alone to do whatever you want. Well, China, China is, incurious about how we barbarians manage our internal affairs. There are all kinds, Americans tell me all the time, doesn't China want to take us over and change our institutions and impose their system on us, change our way of life? I told them the Chinese look at us and they don't think that we're competent to run a Chinese style system, which is based on a ruthless meritocracy and standardized exams and being ruled by the top one-tenth of 1% of exam takers. Bill Buckley famously said that he'd rather be ruled by the first thousand people in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard. Well, China's the other model. That's the faculty of Harvard running a country. It's a hybrid. The faculty of Harvard isn't anti-Chinese. It's they're pro-Chinese well, and, and they're also uh, intellectually rigorous. <laughs> well, the, the Chinese are, you know, I, I don't know if I call them intellectually rigorous, but the people running China now do tend to have doctorates from American universities, at least in these, you know, second tier levels. Uh, they're very clever people. I mean, they're, they have very high IQs and they're good at taking exams. So the Chinese are not interested in imposing their system on the rest of the world. They're interested in dominating technology, trade and finance and using soft power as much as possible to establish imperial sway over many countries. So if you control the 5G infrastructure, control the ports, control railroads and highways, you pretty much own the commanding heights of an economy. And uh, your companies, the Chinese companies will be doing the e-commerce, the e-finance, the telemedicine and all these other cool things that go along with it. Um, That's an imperial approach. Huawei, China's uh, most famous company, is not a Chinese company. It's got 50,000 foreign employees who do most of their R&D. It's an imperial company. So the Chinese imperial model is to absorb the talent of the West, uh, absorb its, uh, uh, its markets, control the technology, make the West, in effect, pay tribute to China. But you know, China's not preparing for invasions of the rest of the world. They only have uh, 10,000 special forces. We have 80,000. So why do they care They're so much about Taiwan? Because Taiwan is China, in their view. If uh, they, don't, they don't care, but they don't want to take over Korea, for example. They don't want to take over the Philippines. The Koreans are not Chinese, but Taiwan is China. And from their standpoint, if the Taiwanese break off, it destroys the credibility of the imperial center and encourages other rebel provinces. So you were saying that Taiwan has one of the lowest birth rates in the world, and it's already completely dependent economically on China, right? So it, 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 it would really just be 
Uh, I, so it's not in a position to rebel against China. And in the meantime, uh, uh, and I think Henry Kissinger said to Fareed Zakaria that, you know, if they just wait, Taiwan will merge with China in due course. And yet you're seeing that uh, Xi Jinping in, and all of these other top level Chinese people, everything that they say is bellicose in relation to Taiwan. And they're oh. making they're they're indicating that they're they want to go to war which is going to precipitate, they, do they want to do it then not for Taiwan, but to undermine America? Is that why no, they would do say, it? Carolyn, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. The perception okay. in China, I mean, the, the term paranoid Chinese is a pleonasm. The Chinese is are, is a pleonasm. In other words, it's like, you know, saying religious Jew, Jews supposed to be religious. It's a, uh, uh, China's a paranoid system. The Chinese, even paranoids, have real enemies. China, for a century, was dismembered by the West, probably lost 100 million people in civil wars, starvation, and so forth. Unspeakable suffering, still a living memory. And every time that the United States talks about, oh, inviting Taiwan to its democracy summit or giving Taiwan more uh, role at the United Nations or little things like that. The Chinese say, aha, the West wants to dismember us, starting with Taiwan and then using the Muslims, uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They're trying to dismember us just like they did in the past. Uh, so China's overflights in what Taiwan calls its airspace, which is a thousand mile, by the way, air recognition zone, it's not its airspace, or a warning that China will not tolerate independence efforts. It's very much like World War I, where if one side moves too far in one direction, the other side will preempt. So from the Chinese standpoint, the West is playing with the idea of Taiwanese sovereignty, which would be a violation of Chinese sovereignty. That would be a cause for war. They will go to war to prevent that. If the United States made clear to the Chinese we stick to the one state, uh, one China policy. The Chinese will decide what they want to do over time by way of reunification or not. It's not our business. We don't recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state. But if you invade, there will be devastating sanctions and terrible things that you don't like. We could kick that can down the road indefinitely. Now, according to UN projections, as you mentioned, Taiwan's demographics are dreadful, by the middle of the century, they'll have uh, uh, 85 retirees for every 100 workers. It's an impossible situation. So they'll have to have massive migration from the mainland. When I say massive, there are 25 million people in Taiwan. That's the size of Shanghai, the size of one big Chinese city. So that situation will sort itself out naturally over time, and Taiwan will reintegrate with the mainland. 20, 30, 40 years from now. The Chinese will not take military action if they think that's the outcome. If they think that our objective is Taiwanese sovereignty, that will spark a war. So that's a very fine line we have to walk. Now, you may say, well, we love democracy. The Chinese are not democratic. Why should we support an independent Taiwan? Uh, do, the question I have is, do we have an existential interest? And, Taiwanese. I don't want to get too deep into this. Some would argue that the United States has an existential interest in this. It, I mean, existential is a big word. It has a strategic interest in protecting Taiwan because it's credibility throughout the Asia Pacific region. And, and, and some would say worldwide is based on the perception that the United States is not going to leave the Taiwanese high and dry if they're attacked by China. And that if they are, uh, this I, is, this I, is, you know. This certainly is true, uh, Carolyn, but, but there's a certain amount of pantomime involved here. We've armed the Taiwanese, but we've given them arms which are pretty useless for defending themselves against the Chinese invasion. They have old F-16s <coughs> and Bs, which would be uh, cannon fodder for the Chinese anti-aircraft systems, say the Russian S-400. They have four antiquated submarines, a few old destroyers. 
the order of battle of the Taiwanese army is to lay down its arms if one shot is fired. If you talk to you know, senior mid-ranking officers in the Taiwanese army, they'll say, we're not going to fight China. So yes, we have an obligation and we have a strategic interest, but we don't have the means to defend Taiwan in a conventional war. If we go to war against China, we're going to lose a fleet carrier, just like Admiral Stavridis wrote in his scenario book, 2034. Stavridis, of course, former head of the U.S. Pacific Command and probably the best expert on this in the world. And then we either go nuclear or we don't. So, you know, if we had not spent $6 trillion running around Iraq and Afghanistan promoting democracy, if we'd spent that on naval technology, it'd be a very different story. But we're dealing with, you know, the same 30 or 40 year old garbage that the defense industry has been selling us at high markups. Uh, well, the Ch uh, Chinese have put in massive capability. If a war with China the South, in, in the South China Sea, first thing that's going to happen is the Chinese will take out all of our GPS and communication satellites. Okay. We'll be blind, deaf, and dumb within hours. What do we do then? I don't know. Can't you know, the United States ask, take? I mean, the United States, by the same token, can take out Chinese uh, satellites. They'll be blind, deaf, and dumb as well. I mean, it's not just the oh, Chinese. No, there's a, there's a big difference. The, on their coast, they can use lighter-than-air vehicles, balloons, and so forth, to surveil and communicate in a very in a decentralized, distributed network. Uh, we could do it too. On your coast, it's very easy to do it. Six thousand miles away, it's very hard to do it. So they could do it. They could they could substitute for the satellites. We can't that easily. All right. Well, I let's just shown. Let, let, let's move. Let's move to the Jews because you know. Um, I mean, in, in a way, I think Israel is an important question because Israel, unlike so many other American allies, certainly unlike Taiwan, is capable of defending itself by itself. And it has been doing it for the past 73 years. But we have a uh, we we are in America's bus and America's bus is, is careening down a cliff that, uh, you know, that that uh, that uh, is hard to get it to stop. You know, tr Trump tried, and you know, as as Yahoo News story showed, uh, the the uh, military and the CIA were blocking him from getting America off of this bus, and they obviously weren't alone. You could go on to the Russian collusion nonsense and all the rest of the things that they did. Even uh, Powell, the the uh, Fed chair, just got a second term. He kept raising interest rates, and Trump said, "Why are you doing this? There's no inflation." Of course, now he's not raising interest rates, but that's neither here nor that. The point is that, you know, Israel's on the bus and um, and along with a lot of other countries. And uh, if if America, for instance, if 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 its satellite communications are knocked out by the Chinese and they already have jamming capabilities and others, the United States doesn't have and never developed, even if it technologically is capable of doing so. Um, and um, how, if you if you were advising Israel, uh, what would you be what would you be saying? Why don't you say it now? Well, uh, you know, I've, I I sit on the board of an organization called Signal Sano Israel Government Network Academic Leadership, which does Israel China relations. Um, we're going to have Carice Witt on uh, as soon as I want to go around again. Uh, yes, Carice, Carice Witt is the, is, the, is the brilliant founder of that organization. It's amazing. Been, uh, I, I've been in uh, you know China many times uh, uh, with signal groups, um, and I really can't advise the Israelis, but I will point out one obvious thing. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I consider to be a diplomatic genius, managed to have excellent relations with Russia and excellent relations with the United States at the same time, sometimes better with one than with the other, as you know. But he managed to be uh, on very good terms with Putin and you know, reasonably good terms with uh, even the Democratic administration. Military cooperation was good, even though there were many tensions. So although uh, Russia was the bait noir in Washington, at that time, Israel maintained an independent diplomatic policy and excellent relations with Russia while it remained an American ally. So 
I see no reason why Israel cannot, within certain very well-defined parameters, maintain excellent relations with China. There are some tripwires, obviously. Israel is not going to sell military technology to China. The Chinese are well aware of this. However, there are many peaceful areas of cooperation, environmental, medical, and other technology, where Israel is a leader that China is very interested in, uh, artificial intelligence, and with with some scrutiny that these things are these areas of technology don't turn into aren't weaponized. Um, China is not an adventurous power when it comes to the Middle East. They 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 are Saudi Arabia's biggest customer. Sometimes Japan is, but they're one of Saudi's biggest customers. They have very good relations with the Saudi Arabia. They don't want a war in the Persian Gulf because that would cut off oil to them and to their Asian trading partners. But they're also and just, you know, they just signed this 25-year deal with Iran. Well, absolutely. Um, exactly what that means, uh, no one's quite sure, but uh, I'm sure it will be substantial. So they have a lot of pull in Iran, and they don't want a war. They don't want a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. They don't want a war between Iran and Israel. That would be devastating for their economy because they need Middle Eastern oil. So do their Asian trading partners. It's really one complex uh, of Asian trade, which runs on Middle Eastern oil. So uh, China could be a stabilizing force in the region with regimes like Iran, uh, conceivably. So that's certainly an area that... Uh, Iran and China are discussing. I'm sure when Xi Jinping called President Herzog last week, that would have been an, that was certainly one of the items on the agenda. So Israel wants a dialogue. Uh, Counterterrorism is another issue. Chinese do have a real problem with Muslim radical terrorism. Whatever they're doing to the Uyghurs, some of which we find repugnant, they nonetheless do have a problem. So that's another issue of that China and Israel have talked about in the past, will continue to. So I think the model of Netanyahu's successful diplomacy with Russia, despite Russia's problems with the United States, is exactly what Israel should follow. Maintain good relations with China, but within certain, uh, without crossing certain tripwires. Now, sometimes it's not clear what the tripwires are. Five, China's 5G technology is a problem. Uh, and I don't know where that stands. It's been an issue of contention between Israel and the United States. Uh, I just don't have uh, any current and ports and infrastructure uh, development. I mean, you know, a lot of these things are. I mean, the thing I think that is alluring to a lot of Israelis at the same time that you know it, it, they are frightened by China's voracious. Um, appetite for technology and uh, uh, natural resources and its ability to insinuate itself between um, or, or everywhere, really. Um, I think the thing that's alluring about China is that there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, structural anti-Semitism. That it's not it's not baked into the broth with the Chinese the way it is with with the Europeans, uh, the Arabs, or uh, increasingly with you know with American progressives, um, so that it you can have a business like relationship with them that's based on mutual interests. Um, and oh, this you know. cuts, yeah, this cuts both ways. There's no anti real anti-Semitism in China because they hardly know us. Uh, to the extent they know us, they tend to be curious about us. Uh, the Chinese popularly uh, tend to like some of the anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes because they think we're good at making money. And the Chinese like the idea that we're good. It's at like the money. Japanese as well. That's what they, they talk right. about Japanese. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story about the Chinese in Israel. Uh, there was a signal meeting uh, just before COVID started, December 2019, Tel Aviv. And I had a chat with the head of the delegation who said, what really fascinates us about Israel is all your Nobel Prize winners. Uh, you've got, you know, what, eight or eight or so of them. And, you know, we don't have really have any, not, not counting the lady who got it for traditional medicine, which was a, just political. How do you do it? And I told the Chinese uh, professor, uh, 
tomorrow, I don't know if I can explain it to you, but I'll show you. So the next day, I took the Chinese group to the children's memorial in Yad Vashem with the candles and the mirrors. And they went through it and they listened to, you know, the voice reading through the names of all the children who were murdered. And I told the Chinese, the secret is we treat every individual as if he had the moral value of the entire universe. The Chinese just looked at me stunned, had no idea what I was talking about. One of the professors said, well, in China, we've got war memorials too, but there are no names, just numbers. China will never get us because the idea of uh, B'Tselem Elohim, the idea of the sanctity of the individual made in the image of God, is totally alien to Chinese culture. They just don't know what you're talking about. They'll never understand it. Some of them individuals will, but China as a culture will never come to grips with the Jews as a culture or religion or civilization. Will they, will they, will, can you foresee a situation where uh, that incomprehension of the Jews will lead to hatred of the Jews? I mean, can you see this? Uh, at, they have uh, no the reason to hate us. They're curious about us. What are, what is our usefulness? They would like more double prize winners. They need creativity. They think of creativity as a commodity. How can we get more of this thing, this innovative capacity? Let's observe other people and see if we can learn from them. Chinese are pragmatic and syncretic. When they find something they like better than what they've got, they adopt it. A Peking University doesn't teach Lao Tzu to ancient or Confucius. They teach Kant and Hegel and mathematical logic. Chinese music students don't study traditional instruments. They study Bach and Mozart. So they will look at us and try to learn from us. Um, they're always dangerous to deal with because they have no loyalty to us. They have no emotional tie to us the way this, for example, a Harry Truman did or American evangelicals do. But neither do they hate us. They have no reason to. Well, I mean, in a way, it, it's refreshing to think of it because right now, um, Israel's relations with Western powers right now led by the Biden administration are so steeped in emotion and so steeped in, um, frankly, in anti-Semitism of this uh, negative uh, demonology or mythology of the Jewish people and them insisting on you know telling us who we are and what we're supposed to be and what our rights are to this land and what we can do and what we cannot do and um and and uh, you know uh, casting aspersions at, at the moral right of the jewish people not to mention our legal right to have a country oh. so you know it, yes, it's this is this this is certainly true carolyn my advice if you want it for the israelis is when you deal with the chinese have modest expectations and concentrate on very practical things what do you think it would take i don't want you know because i what do you think it would take because i think it takes as we saw with trump and the way that they undermined him what do you think it will take for the united states to turn itself around to 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 turn this bus into a different direction to stop careening down a cliff i mean you know, you look at the American people and there's so much that's extraordinary about the United States. There's so much that's wonderful about the American way of life. And it just doesn't seem necessary for it to collapse this way. And, uh, you know, what I mean, China can surprise you because some bureaucrat at the top in Beijing can say something stupid or do something stupid and and they can really hurt themselves this you know a year and a half ago they released the covid-19 virus to the world well next time it could just end up hurting them you know because somebody will make a mistake and they forget to you know send everybody out of wuhan and close them up to china and uh, you know things can happen when you have that kind oh, of centralized oh, oh. authority but what can happen in america in this diffuse country, in this decentralized federal state that can, you know, what has to happen aside from the obvious, oh, let's take back our universities. Oh, this, you know, what, how do you turn around and rebuild it with worn out tools? Well, you know, we've always had uh, 
sort of a split personality in the U.S. We've always, to some extent, we always think that e pluris una means something for nothing. <laughs> and on the other hand, we have this sense of the city on the hill. <clears throat> I think what we need to do is leadership in the United States. We need a John F. Kennedy who could stand on the podium at Rice University, point to the moon and say, we're going to be there by 1969. We need a Ronald Reagan who can summon us to national greatness. America has always been something of a big sort of evangelical tent meeting. We get enthusiastic, we get together, we have a sense of what we can do as a country, and then we surprise the world. Uh, and then we sort of have a hangover the next day, we go back to uh, uh, pursuing, you know, life, liberty, and property or whatever, and, you know, ignore the common good. Um, I think we need leadership. And we've been sadly lacking in that. Uh, I think Trump did a lot of good things, but he was really the reality show version of an American leader as opposed to the real thing. And nefarious forces that tried to sandbag him, I think, you know, effectively did sandbag him by making him uh, ineffective. They, they, in a sense, drove him crazy. So although I had some hopes for Trump, uh, his opposition by, you know, massive, you know, phony investigations of him really did undermine his administration. And it ultimately, it was not an effective administration. Um, I don't think Trump is that leader. Uh, I hope we find one. I hope America finds one, too, because I'm, I'm all for having transactional ties with China, but I don't see how how the world stays a place that we want it to be without the United States uh, re oh, I, reassuming I, I its role of, of sane superpower. You know? I, I do not want, I tell my Chinese acquaintances, I want China to be prosperous, secure, and much weaker than the United States. <laughs> I think the world would be much better if the United States remains the dominant superpower. Uh, we can do it, whether we have the will to do it, who knows? Well, right now, America very demonstrably does not have the will to do it, and it does not have the leadership to do it. Even when Joe, you know, Joe Biden is awake, or you know, it's no better than when he's asleep, and and or worse maybe. But uh, and Kamala is is definitely not not the answer either. So I agree with you. I think that leadership is sorely lacking, and I think leadership. And by the way, it's true in Israel as well. I mean, we're we're poorly served by our usurper government. <laughs> um, but uh, all right, well, you know, I guess what you have to do when you're in the storm is keep your head down and move forward and hope for the best in the future. And I and I think that that's probably what the American people have to do. And that's what the Israeli people have to do. And well, you know, Carolyn, I, I grind out papers for various think tanks on what we should do with industrial policy and defense technology and so forth. And I write about it in Asia Times and for Claremont and the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. So you know, I, I and many other people talk about it, and we hope that people, you know, will will find the leadership that can run with this kind of program. Well, I I I I think that, uh, and I definitely read David Goldman, and you should all read what he what he writes because I think that Thank you. And, and and I read Carolyn Glick religiously. Well, there you go. So we're, we are part of a mutual admiration society. And I think we're both very uh, concerned about the way that things are going. China is an impressive place. It, it, is, it, is, it has a single-minded uh, uh, goal and it is, it is pursuing it and advancing towards uh, achieving that goal by hook or by crook or by both. And um, it, it can't be, it, it has to be taken into consideration. It has earned its place at the table, but, uh, um, you know, uh, we have to hope that uh, it's the eve of Thanksgiving when we're talking and we have to hope that God will bless America and its allies, first and foremost, the Jews. And, uh, and we will pursue the truth and justice and the American way and uh, move forward into this great dark night. So there you go. Oh, okay. thank you, Superwoman. All right, well, we'll be, we'll be having David Goldman back on this show 
whenever he has time for us and we will be uh, uh, joined. It's an honor and privilege, Carolyn. Thank you. Well, I think that I thank you for informing me and for uh, and for informing our viewers about the very complicated puzzle that is China and how we're supposed to best look at it carefully. <laughs> well, thank you very much, David. Thank you all for watching. And remember thank to you, subscribe, Charlie. to tune in, to share, and to get the word out about Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. Uh, and uh, we will we will pursue the pr truth moving forward into episode 29 next week. So thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care.